Today, James and I are going to talk to Randy Couture, uh, one of my biggest wins, one of the classiest acts, and a legend of the sport. So tune in. Check it out. とある田舎町で生まれて移り住んだ新宿で育ちこの町で大きたこれまでの俺たちの What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the Yamaso Damashi podcast. Today, we're joined by MMA legend, Mr. Randy Couture. Randy, how are you doing today? Doing great, man. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate you guys. Awesome. Thanks when was the last time you guys, you and Ensign saw each other? Gosh, when was the last time? The, um, MMA events in Vegas. Uh, the MMA awards, maybe? Yeah, I think I ran into you. And yeah. I think we just pretty much just went, hey, what's up? That's it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that that must have been if it was the MMA awards. That was uh, the last time any of us saw Kevin Randleman because I went. That was the last time I've been to the awards, and then that following Monday, yes. Kevin passed away. I mean, it was a big yes, shock. I saw Kevin. I saw Kevin at that awards. Yeah, he came yeah. and said hi. Yeah. What a shock! That was crazy. Yeah, unbelievable, huh? Yeah. You just never know. You never know when you're going to yeah. draw on your last breath. Yep. Yeah. Seriously, man. Gotta live every day like it's your last. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. So, Randy, we're, we're super stoked to get you on the podcast. Um, you know, one of the things that we do uh, in this podcast is we we you know we talk a number of different topics, but we also look back on Ensign's career. And so we've actually break down each fight as it happens. And the next one in that series was yourself. So we're, uh, we're looking forward to talking about that fight. Um, but before we do, I mean... I kind of wanted to get a bit of context around that fight because one of the things that I've always wondered as a fan was you beat Maurice Smith um, to become mm-hmm. the UFC heavyweight champion. What yep. happened there? Because you then went to, to Valley to Japan, which, it, you know, yeah. it, it, for I suppose for some of the modern day fans, they'll, they'll be scratching their head wondering what actually happened in that scenario. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, uh, it was a whirlwind that first year of fighting for me. You know, I, I took, the UFC 13 heavyweight tournament spot on short notice in a, in a couple weeks. Thankfully, I was already training to go to Puerto Rico and wrestle for the Pan Am Championship. So conditioning was an issue. Just technically, I didn't know shit about fighting, frankly. And I need I had spent five days on the ground kind of getting up to speed with what these jiu-jitsu guys were doing and what all this stuff was about with Rico Rodriguez before that very first fight in UFC 13. Um Obviously, I fought twice that night. It was still a tournament format. I, I, I won uh, the tournament, and that put me in a position to, to fight Vitor Belfort right away. Um, and that the winner of that fight was going to get a title shot. Mark Coleman and Maurice Smith had just fought for the title, and, and Maurice battered him, you know, kicked his legs, wore him out, and, and, and basically took the heavyweight championship from Mark. Um, and then I ended up, uh, you know, fighting Vitor, winning that fight. That sent me to Japan, the first time going to Japan, <coughs> fighting in Shin Yokohama uh, against Maurice Smith for the heavyweight championship of the world. Um, Twenty, You know, 21-minute fight went my way, decision. 
And here I am in, in four fights. I'm like, what just happened? I'm, I'm standing here now with a world championship belt around my waist. It, it was like, what the hell just happened? Um, wanted me to fight. You know, we, we, we negotiated a new contract because I was on a one-fight deal then, and they signed me to a three-fight deal that progressively got a little bit better money each fight. They wanted me to fight Mark Coleman uh, to defend the title. And I said, yes. Um, Mark... Uh, I ended up popping a rib getting ready for the national championships in Greco-Roman wrestling. And so took me out of the nationals, took me out of that fight with Mark. Pete ended up fighting Mark for that and kicking Mark square oh, in, in the mug. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, so then they asked me to fight boss Rutan, and I was ready to fight boss, but they, they said, Hey, we, we can't afford to pay you what, what we have on this contract. Uh, they came back with a number that was, you know, a quarter of what the contract said they were supposed to pay me. And I said, look, I'm I'm ready to defend the title and fight Boss Rutan or whoever else you want me to fight. But you're going to have to stick to the contract. I mean, we spent three weeks negotiating this. You know, these are the numbers. You could lament all you want, but but these are the numbers. It's in black and white right here. So I stuck to my guns. They decided I chose not to defend my title. They stripped me of the title and they created that heavyweight tournament, the boss, Kevin Randleman, TK Kosaka, all those guys were in that, that progressive tournament to, to fill the vacant title. And that freed me up as a free agent. I still wanted to compete. Uh, Shuto offered me a fight with Ensign in Japan, in the Japanese market. And that's how that, that all went down. I was on the outs with, with uh, SEG, the, the previous owners, Bob Meyerowitz and company of the UFC because they wouldn't honor the contract that we negotiated. And that, that freed me up. I fought uh, in that Shuto fight with Ensign. That was my first loss in the sport. Um, I think I was a typical wrestler still, making typical wrestler mistakes, a little over-aggressive. I knew I didn't want to stand and bang with Ensign. I uh, was trying to find a way to, to take him down. I ended up getting him on the ground. But you know, in typical wrestler fashion, attacked the head put myself in bad position Ensign climbed right up to the arm bar and there was no getting out of that. Uh, it was very tight. He popped my elbow pretty good. Um, and, and I had to tap, it, you know, it was my very first loss in the sport. That was what five fights in. <laughs> did, did you know much about Ensign before um, the fight itself? I, I had met Egan uh, through Matt Thornton. And the JKD and Jim's up in the Portland area. That's where me, Matt Little, and Dan Henderson were doing a lot of our training. This was before we started Team Quest. Okay. Um, yeah. So I knew of Egan, and because of Egan, knew of Ensign, but I hadn't actually, I don't believe I'd ever met Ensign at that point. Yeah. Even yeah. though UFC 13, Ensign fought on that card. So I saw yeah. him compete. He fought uh, a kid from Iowa. I just Yeah, Royce Alger. I, I, his name was flew right on my head uh he fought royce in, in that he won that fight against royce he armbarred royce royce as well um but he, he suffered a pretty severe eye injury in the fight and couldn't advance to the final because it was a tournament format that put tito in his spot yeah a guy metzger yeah and that yeah. started the whole thing with tito Lion. and lion's den and and all of that stuff with ken and yeah. and uh, that's just how that all unfolded. You just never know what's going to happen. That's one of the yeah. cool things about this sport. 
Yeah, is, really. You can't make you can't make predictions. You just don't know. It's so volatile. Anything could happen. So true. So true. Ensign, do you remember when um, was it Shuto that brought up the? Uh, did they bring up the idea of Randy to you? Like, what, do you remember what the it was from your side of things? Yeah, Shuto. Um, they gave me an offer. They asked me if I wanted to fight. Uh, the offer was Randy or Dan Severin. And I was like, um, Randy has a bigger name. Dan Severin was considered the beast. So either one would have been cool because, you know, back in the day, I wasn't trying to fight people that I thought I could beat. I was trying to fight people that I thought was going to take me to a place where I was going to break. And mm. I thought, I saw Randy Couture beat up Vitor Belfort. And Vitor was at that time called the Phenom. You know, he just was yep. beating up everybody. And when Randy dirty boxed Vitor, it was like, holy shit, that's unreal. And then he won the championship. So Randy was something that I think it was a it was a huge challenge for me. So I was intrigued with that fight, but I almost also felt that it was probably over my head. So that might be a I mean, he saw me armbar Royce Alger in UFC 13. He's definitely mm -hmm. gonna you know, defend from that. So that's my strength, my ground. So I'm thinking, oh, what am I gonna do? And I thought, okay, maybe Dan Severn might be better. Maybe I'm shooting a little over my head to go to rest. <laughs> and was, you know, the, the stars aligned and Dan Severn had a pro wrestling, bat, um, pro wrestling match booked. So he mm -hmm. said, we have Randy. I said, well, let's do Randy then. And the funny thing about that fight was everybody, my trainers, my coaches, my, everybody, my fans were all saying, oh my God, you're fighting Randy Couture. And it, it, it was funny because it got to me to a point where I got kind of upset about it that people were counting me out. And mm. I, I, I was telling people, you know, he's human. And if I grab his neck, he'll go out. If I grab his arm, I'll break it. And I also told them that, you know, if there's a, if there's like 99% of me losing, as long as that, there's that 1%, if we walk that 1%, that other 99 don't matter. Mm. So I thought, I'm just going to give it everything I got and I'm gonna and I took the fight. So yeah, when, when you know the build up when I saw Randy, he was a lot bigger than I thought he was. Yeah. So you know it was a for me it was a I guess to the to the training, the months that I was training for the fight, I, I kind of mindset myself that you know he's human. That's the whole thing I got to was he's human. He's human and if I catch something, I can finish it. And Randy, you, you mentioned, obviously, um, you fought Maurice Smith in Japan. That was the first time you went to Japan. What, what was your first impression like, of going to Japan? I felt like I was on a different planet. Um, yes. I, you know, I, I don't look like anybody. I can't read anything. Uh, I, I'm a, a full head taller than just about everybody in this culture. Uh, it was a very, very, I always wanted, I was always intrigued by the Japanese culture and kind of wanted to go. I said that after I beat Vitor, that, you know, all right, I'm going to get a good chance to go to Japan. I'd never been. And uh, in many ways, I felt like I was, I was on a different planet. I, it was, it was very, very intriguing and very, very interesting. Huge crowds in that, in a, that arena. I think there was almost 20,000 people in that arena that night. And you could have heard a pin drop in there. It was, you know, against yeah. Maurice. It, it was so quiet. It was here, except for my wife. I could hear my wife screaming very clearly. <laughs> but that's the American way, isn't it? The crowds are completely different. It's a whole different animal 
uh, first time eating udon noodles on on the street, and you know so many so many interesting things there. You know, uh, Frank Shamrock was cornering Maurice. They had been kind of formed that alliance and were working together. You know, Maurice was helping them with their striking, and and they were trying to help him with his ground game. And I remember, you know, Danny Henderson was cornering me for that fight. Uh, we were in the training center that they, they assigned to us, which was, I think, a little Shuto gym somewhere there in Yokohama. And uh, and Frank was there, and I kind of knew what he was doing. He he wanted to pummel. He wanted to kind of grab. I think he wanted to feel and, and get a sense of, of what I knew and where I was at and, and all that. I still have some pictures from, from that day in the gym with Dan and, and with Frank. Uh, it was a unique experience for sure. Um, awesome. But the, the, I don't think there's any place like Japan and the Japanese culture yeah. on the planet. It, it's a very, very unique place. They certainly, with Bushido, have embraced the sport and in a lot of ways were, were responsible for where the sport has gone and, and how far the sport has come. Yeah. You you must have felt um, like the fans knew pretty much who you were then when you came to fight Ensign at Valley Tudo Japan in 98. Oh, no doubt about that. I think, uh, yeah, it, you know, there's such fans of the sport there. Uh, I remember uh, going, well, that very first fight, going to a pancrase with John McCarthy. And man, I had never been mobbed like that in my life, ever. It was almost scary. There was so many people. <laughs> Thank God I was taller than everybody else because, it, I mean, it was a crush. And I was like, yeah. holy cow, this is insane. It's like for me, when I, uh, when I was going to fight Randy, when I... I knew Randy when after my biggest problem I saw was the dirty boxing. So what I did was I went to a wrestling school in, in Tokyo and I, I went with the, I know it's Greco Roman. So I went with the Greco Roman team mm -hmm. and I, I mentioned that I'm fighting you. They all knew who you were. They knew you're Greco Roman. They knew all that. So it was really easy to prepare for that. So all I did, I pretty much, you know, I was, I was really worried about your dirty boxing. So I, I went to the college schools and every day, every class that they had, I would just mix with the wrestling guys and just Greco-Roman, Greco-Roman, Greco-Roman wrestling. That's pretty much all I did. I mean, just Greco-Roman wrestling. And I was thinking if I could give you enough trouble and want you to take me down, that would be you bringing you into my world. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was, it was, uh, that was the whole plan is to try and Greco. What, what the funny thing was, was back in that day, there was no rules on how much tape you can put on your legs and, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So we taped up, I think I taped up my legs that um, really, uh, we put almost like three tape rolls of tape on my, the front of my shin. Hmm. And I thought, and my thing was, I'm going to walk in there. I'm gonna, I don't give a care about the takedown or anything. I'm going to step in there and break his leg on the first kick. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> when I saw his front leg, it was uh, his left leg was front. I stepped in with my left leg and tried to kick him with it hard inside kick and he just sucked that up and took me down. I was like, Oh shit, I'm on the ground now. Okay. Now let's work the jujitsu. You know? Yeah. <laughs> when, I, yeah. when I first got that, I got it locked up in a triangle. I, I was, what surprised me was Randy just lifted me up right off the ground. I was like, Holy shit. He's strong. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, definitely. In that fight, you can really see your, your strength, Randy, because uh, you, you, you pick him up in the triangle. You, you had a really nice throw right before the end of the fight as well. Um, so uh, it's my first time fighting in a ring in, oh, and not a cage. Um, and, and that definitely changes tactically 
you know, using a solid barrier is a, a lot different than ring ropes and, and, uh, and all of that. And, and I think that affects your ability to close the distance, to clinch, to use the dirty boxing, because there isn't a solid barrier. You have to worry about going through the ropes or getting tangled up in the ropes. The, the square shape is different than the round octagon as well, or, or, or you know, circle. Uh, those were all things that were new to me. And, and I think, you know, it was a, an experience for sure. And I always embraced the, the fact or possibility that, that I could lose. I could lose any fight. Like you said, I am human, and, and and it happens to everybody. I don't care who it is, and and so I had made friends with that as I transitioned from wrestling into this sport where people could kick you in the head or punch you in the face, and it's a lot different than the rules of engagement or wrestling. And I just kind of had to make friends with that possibility that I could get knocked out, I could get beat, and I think uh, in my mind, it you know psychologically. I knew the people that really mattered in my life weren't going anywhere. They didn't care whether I won or lost a fight. And the fans are fickle. You're only as good as your last fight. I wasn't worried about that. So I took each of those, each of those times I lost. And that was the very first time I experienced that I lost. Um, you know, I had to analyze what I did wrong. Obviously it was very apparent that can opener grabbing his head and locking my, both my arms into that position was, it was a classic thing that wrestlers did. And, Classically, they ended up getting caught in arm bars, and I hadn't learned that yet. And then Anson taught me that the hard way. <laughs> well, my whole my whole idea of that fight was to, once the on button was turned on, I was going to go full on, and and until I until I ran out of gas or I got knocked out. Mm. And I remember even when uh, he threw me, when he lifted me, threw me, I lost my triangle, and then he he was standing over me. I just thought I just got to keep going. That's why I started trying to kick his legs, trying to kick him high. <laughs> I yeah, tried that surprised me actually. You you sprung up from your butt with your hands and threw those legs up, and I was like, "Holy shit, where did that come from?" <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I was. You know, it wasn't something I really thought about doing. I just thought about keeping that pressure, keep keeping that pressure, keep the attack. I want to be no matter where I am on the on the in the fight. I want to be the attacker. So when I was on my back, I know that's like the position where you're kind of getting attacked. So I didn't want the movement to start where Randy was the aggressor. So I that's why I kept active. I, I know didn't you couldn't see it in the fight, but there was one low kick I tried to kick you with, and you stepped aside and you caught me flush in the face with a with a right right punch coming down from when I was in my, on the ground. Mm. That kind of rattled me that punch. And I huh. that's that's what I was thinking. I was thinking, okay, I'm, I'm kicking, trying to kick him. He moved. He, I think he, you avoided a nice leg kick, punched me in the face. The, I didn't know if the, the kick up high was doing anything. So, I, you know, I got to get up. And I knew that you're waiting for me to get up. I knew you were going to try and strike me when I got up. But I thought, you know what? I'm just going to get up anyway. It was funny because you were ready. And when I got up, I think you threw a nice right to me. But I was able to eat that punch and I was able to clinch. And I haven't watched that fight in forever. <laughs> yeah. I definitely watched it a seconds. few times. You know, after the yeah, fact. And, like, and like you said, when when you when you threw me to the ground, I was like, "Holy shit!" He took me to the ground. I was because I was so worried about your dirty boxing and how I was going to stand mm -hmm. up with that. When you mm -hmm. threw me to the ground, I was like, "Oh shit, this is perfect." And I said, "Okay, just relax, wait for the chance." And then, like you said, when I felt you grab my head, I was saying, okay, wait a minute. 
He's grabbing my head. So I I thought that you probably saw what I did to Royce. So I thought that, okay, I'm not going to shoot for armbar anyway because if I do, he's going to pull his arm out and I'll be at the bottom. So mm. what I did was, if you watch, if you noticed in the video, I set my legs right on your shoulder, just waiting mm. for you to loosen up. And when I felt you loosen up my head, probably strike, that's when I all that my legs were already right by your head. So all I needed to do was pass it over your face. Mm. Pass it over. I, I for me it was it was surreal because I was like, holy shit, this is a deep armbar. Yeah, it was deep. And then and then when you try to you did the wrong thing instead of stacking, you try to pull out. Yep. And I'm like, holy shit, I'm just gonna hold on to this and start arching. And I remember you pulling out and falling to your face, and I was on my face. And I remember your your arm popping in my in my groin. I could feel it popping. And then I was thinking to myself, holy shit, his arm's popping. <laughs> and then when you started tapping my leg, I was like, there was another whole realization, like, holy fuck, Randy Couture just tapped. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, it was like it was overwhelming to a point where it was almost like, like a dream. <laughs> and then my first feeling, my first feeling was I had so much animosity to the people that doubted me. Mm. That when, I, when I went up to Egan after the fight, I told him, I'm going to tell these fans off. And Egan goes, no, Egan's like the, Egan's like the, the mellow brother. I'm the crazy brother. <laughs> He's your no cricket. <laughs> no, Edson, don't do that. And I was like, I put, you see me push Egan away. I grabbed the mic and. What I was planning to say was all of you who thought I was going to lose in your face. But for some reason, what came out and it's a real famous thing now is I said, for all of you who thought I was going to lose, fuck you. And I threw the mic down and laughed. That's funny. Yeah, I, w I was wondering what you said in that moment because you get so angry and then you chuck the microphone down. But it's in Japanese, right? So I had no idea what it was that you said. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Neither did I. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah, that was a, uh, for me, um, that was like, I mean, how much more perfect can a fight be? I mean, you know, and people ask me about it. perspective, <laughs> 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 but for I really did believe that yeah Randy was a better fighter more experience with his wrestling background he had more tools and I just thought that wow I got lucky we walked at 1% if we fought tomorrow there's probably a better chance he's going to beat me if we fought 100 times there's going to be one time I probably beat him and, and I was just lucky that that was that one time well that was a you know, obviously a pivotal, I, every loss I had was a pivotal moment for me and a chance for me to learn, to get better, to figure out what I did wrong, uh, and how I ended up in that situation and, and come back and make adjustments and make changes. I never watched the fights I won. Damn straight, I watched the ones I lost because that was my chance to become a better athlete and at the end of the day, a better human. So I always try to keep that stuff in perspective. My fight record's, my fight record's 19 and 11. It's not like I was undefeated. Uh, but you were definitely the first one that set me on that course. I lost some of the biggest wrestling matches that you could ever be in as well. The Olympic trials on four occasions, you know, NCAA championships on two occasions. So 
you know, dealing with the aftermath of that kind of setback and that kind of adversity was something I was used to dealing with and keeping in perspective and recognizing what I needed to do uh, to go back and, and sort it out and, and, and get back out there, get back on that horse, get back on that bike and, and be better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, so after that, Randy, um, you actually stayed in Japan, right? You did like uh, the rings organization. And you would, yeah. I ended up fighting in, in, you know, I cornered Danny for the KOK tournament with rings. I fought, uh, what was that Russian's name? He, I ended up losing in a, in a rings tournament or a rings match. That was a big was controversy, a right? Yeah, that was, it was ridiculous, ridiculous stoppage. That was, that was ridiculous. You know, I had this guy in trouble. I can't even remember his name now. He was, he was a stocky, kind of like Boshanchin, but he was before Boshanchin. Yeah, uh, it, was, it was built like Bochanchin, but I can't remember his name. Misha, he was, I think his name was Misha or Mikolov or something. It was Misha, Misha something. Misha. But, uh, yeah. I had him in trouble on the ropes, but he was his head kind of popped out over between the first and second rope. He was trying to go for a Kimura to save himself. Um, they stopped us there and moved us to the middle of the ring and then gave him a full Kimura um, and then started yeah. to fight again. I'm like, what the hell are you doing? Yeah. yeah, and of I remember course, I was um, there. I was there for that fight. That was ridiculous. I think they thought I was going to freak out and go nuts, and and I maintained my composure. I, you know, obviously I knew it was bullshit. It was a ridiculous restart. Um, but I, I think the Japanese promoter was surprised that I didn't go ape shit and, and really kind of throw a fit. And that's just not my style. It's not who I am. Yeah, this is ridiculous and it sucked. But you know, again, it's one of those things you have to face and take in stride and keep moving forward. So, yeah. I fought in that. I fought in the KOK thing. I cornered Danny in that very first KOK tournament. And he ended up beating Nogueira in the final. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I fought in that the next year. Um, and then the UFC came back after me. You know, Randleman had ended up winning that heavyweight tournament. You know, beat Boss. Some question whether, you know, whether it was Boss that won that fight or whether it was Kevin that won that fight. But, um, <clears throat> and, yeah, that, you know, they, they, Kevin was Kevin. And, uh, you know, they, they, they said, hey, we want you to come back and fight for the heavyweight title. And I said, well, I've already done the first round of this KOK tournament. I'll come back and fight Kevin, but you have to let me fight in the final of the KOK uh-huh. tournament that's not till January. And they said, okay, we'll allow you to do that, to finish that tournament. And, you know, I fought Kevin in October, and then I went back to Japan in January, even though I was still under contract with the UFC at that time, and fought in the final. And I lost in the final to Overeem uh, in, a, in a guillotine choke. Took a horrible shot. Again, in the ring. The ring was just something I was still getting used to. And when you have that solid barrier, you can run a guy right into it and use that trampoline effect to take a guy down. You, know, you don't have that option in a ring. And I shot a horrible double leg on my knees and he slapped on a guillotine and fell back and, and caught me in a, a pretty solid choke uh, to cost me in the final. Or uh, I would have won that, that KOK tournament. But, you know, again, it's grand scheme of things. It's all about learning. It's all about making the adjustments. Yeah, That's super interesting though, right? About um, I, I'd always wondered how, how that worked, whether you were fighting in the UFC, but then also doing the, the KOK tournament as yeah. well. But I, I just... I didn't want to. I didn't want to pull out of that KOK tournament. Yeah. You know, I, I'd won the first two rounds, you know, first two matches, and and won. You know, had had aspirations of winning that whole thing. Um, 
but it didn't work out that way. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Though. It's good. And it, it shows you're a man of your word, right? You probably promised to the promoter that you'd want to be in that. Yeah, that I started it. I wasn't going to pull out. I was never yeah. that guy that pulled out of a fight anyway. There were probably a couple fights I should have pulled out of. You know, Van Arsdale, I, I probably shouldn't have fought Mike. And I had a very, very bad staph infection in my right knee and was on uh, intravenous antibiotics three weeks going into that fight. Probably should have pulled out of that fight. I have never been that tired in a fight in my life. <laughs> We're both standing there at the start of the third round with my hands on my knees. And I look over and he's got his hands on his knees. And he's looking at me and I'm looking at him and I've made myself stand up and start jumping up and down. And I just saw his face drop. He's like, oh, shit. <laughs> and a minute later he tapped i mean that body language is very very powerful you got to yes, make sure you're controlling that is something you need to practice in the training environment you're not not showing everybody that you're exhausted that you're tired with your hands on your hips or your hands on your head or your hands on your knees you're sending a message to your opponent and boy i'm gonna wink and smile and take it up three notches when i see that and see what you really got yeah yeah cool um just another question randy just we obviously talking about like mma in japan uh i noticed you did you did commentary for pride a couple of times right uh um, yeah once or twice i got to come over as a guest commentator one of those uh, times was during their grand prix uh one of their grand prix i think uh vanilla Silva was fighting mark hunt right. and i had a, a major blunder on national <laughs> television because Mark Hunt got a cut. You see where I'm going here. Cut, Hunt. And something else came out of my mouth that wasn't oh, supposed to come out of my mouth. I thought Boss was going to fall off this chair. He was laughing so hard because Boss was commentating for Pride at that time. And the atomic butt drop because, you know, Vandalay yes. oh, tried to jump over Mark Hunt's legs and and land on him and and Mark pushed him off. It was like an atomic butt drop. I, I coined that in that particular yeah. moment too, that a bunch of people went crazy about. But yeah, the the cut that was oh man, I was, I turned red. I was so embarrassed. <laughs> That's amazing. Did they ever? Was there any a point where you could have fought in Pride? Was there that ever an option? They uh, they they came at me at one point. Uh, my contract with the UFC was, was, you know, in negotiation period and, and they threw some money at me to, to get me to come to, to fight pride. Um, it was a little bit more money than the UFC was offering me at the time. And it was, you know, you know how pride was, they paid in cash. They, it wasn't a check. Um, but in my mind, you know, obviously Danny and I were best friends and I was cornering Danny for a lot of his pride fights. And uh, you know, I was, garnering sponsorships and a, bu a bunch more marketing stuff and, and everything like that, fighting in the UFC in the American market. And Danny was still relatively obscure because most of his fights had happened in the Japanese market. He was a huge star in Japan, but nobody in the US market really knew who he was. And so in my mind, I calculated all that. And I thought, well, this, this cash is great and it's a good offer, but it's probably more beneficial for me to continue to, to fight in the American market. And so I chose to stay with the UFC and, and passed on the, on the opportunity to fight in Pride. Wow. That's interesting. It's a crazy image to think of you fighting in Pride, just especially because, you know, there was even that time when um, Dana brought in Chuck and that side of things. Yeah. Well, that was the stipulation in that fight with me and Chuck 
the yeah. loser was going to go fight in the in the Pride Grand Prix, and the winner was going to obviously stay. They they weren't going to put their heavyweight or their light heavyweight champion on a pedestal for Pride because you know it's a volatile yeah. sport. They don't want their light heavyweight champ to to lose to to a Pride fighter. So I did that's how Chuck ended up getting the nod to go to go fight in that Grand Prix. Uh, you know he beat Al. He, he beat the other Overeem. Uh, yep. The taller, skinnier over him. At least at that time, he was taller yeah, and skinnier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that changed in a real hurry. Uh, <laughs> but I was there, and that was again one of those times I got to be a guest commentator because they brought me over in support of Chuck fighting in that Grand Prix. Um, but that's how that unfolded. Oh, that's great! I had no idea that that was the stipulation that whoever lost that fight would be. Yeah, I don't think nobody knows. Yeah, no, that you know that was one of those things they they talked about when we were negotiating, uh, yeah. you know, and and that was how it was going to go down. So that's what happened. Wow, it's crazy. When you look back on your career, your fighting career, you you have so many highs, right, and there's so many titles that you won. I was just wondering, is there any one in particular that meant the most to you? I think. Uh, you know, retiring for 13 months, coming out of retirement to fight Tim Sylvia for the heavyweight championship in Ohio at the Arnold Classic. That was the biggest crowd we'd had in an MMA event in North America at that time. It was almost 20,000 people in, in that arena, nationwide arena in Columbus, Ohio. That crowd was insane. And I think because of my age, it was, I was almost 44 years old. Uh, again, everybody thought I was going to lose. Uh, Tim six foot eight. I mean, we looked like Mutt and Jeff in the cage, and uh, and they were sure, you know, I I was going to get my ass handed to me, and and obviously it didn't go that way. Um, so the, the, that crowd, that ten second countdown at the end of that fight, him falling in, in the first twenty five seconds of that fight, those are, I mean, those are just things. I was as surprised as everybody else when I hit him with the overhand right, left inside kick, overhand right was supposed to follow with the left hook, and he was gone. He disappeared. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> and, you know, and I think the crowd stood up. Everybody stood up in that moment. And I don't think they sat back down for the next 20 minutes. It was insane. Crazy, crazy crowd. And that, that you know, and Tim was a friend of mine. I, I knew Tim well. Um, you know, that, that was just a very, very special night. And again, one of those times that I was, I was an underdog because of my age in just about every single fight. And... On the podcast, we, we, we've talked about some of Ensign's losses and kind of what they meant to him going forward and his career. I'm just wondering, was there uh, any particular loss that where you felt like you obviously mentioned the fight with Ensign, but I was wondering if any other ones as well? Were... I think the, the, the pivotal loss for me that shifted my mentality a lot and forced me to really analyze what I was doing was, was the Josh Barnett fight. You know, that was right. a fight that, that I felt like, you know, this is going to come down to wrestling. And I have a much better wrestling pedigree than Josh has. Josh is a big guy and he's a great submission guy, but he, he nine times out of 10, there's no way he's going to take me down and put me in that position. And, but I had been working so diligently since Ensign on, on my jujitsu and figuring this whole jujitsu thing out. It's wrestling inverted. They're okay on their butts, on their backs. That's the last place you want to be as a wrestler. And yes. so I needed to get comfortable and figure out these tactics and these techniques from, from these jujitsu positions and learn this because these are the guys I'm facing. And it's already cost me one fight because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I, didn't, I wasn't up to speed the way I probably should have been. And 
And so I was spending a lot of time giving up, you know, pulling guard, giving up position, letting guys take me down so I could learn to operate better from my back. And eventually I got a black belt in jujitsu, but that took many, many years. And it was that loss. I went back and looked at that video. I was like, man, I pulled guard. What the hell was I thinking? I already knew nine times out of 10, Josh couldn't take me down, but we got into a scramble and I flopped to my back and pulled this big gorilla on top of me. What the hell was I thinking? But that was the mindset and the mode in my training that I was doing. And, and that cost me the fight. And so from that point forward, I shifted my mentality. I was like, there's no way I'm going to catch all these black belts in jujitsu and get up to speed with what they're doing. I understand how they're operating, but I need to rely on what brought me to this dance in the first place. And that is my wrestling. So I decided from that moment forward, I was never going to pull guard again. If a guy was good enough to take me down or put me on my back and that happened not short, not, not long after that, uh, then, then good for him. And I've at least spent some time down here to know how to protect myself, know how to operate from there. Maybe not going to catch anybody in an arm bar or a triangle choke, but I know how to create a scramble and get back up from my back. And so that was a very, very important fight for me. And, and I started focusing on catch wrestling instead of jujitsu. A lot of this very same submission positions come out of that. Uh, and it's almost as old. It's, I think it's an older sport actually than Brazilian jujitsu for sure. But, uh, I shifted back into that wrestler's mindset and I started getting more submissions in my game when I started focusing on catch wrestling instead of jujitsu. And then Neil Melanson helped me take that to a whole new level. And I eventually got my black belt under Neil Melanson. And we focused solely on wrestling positions and how to use a bunch of these wrestling tactics and techniques to put guys in positions and, and start submitting guys and be more effective there than, than pulling guard. Or, or playing the jiu-jitsu game. Jiu-jitsu is a, a little bit different mentality, in my opinion. It's the path of least resistance. They're going to play that slow game until they frustrate you or get you out of position, and then you're in trouble. Then they catch you. Wrestling was like, I'm going to run at this wall until I make a hole in it and make a guy submit to my pressure and, and my, you know, what I'm doing. So much important wrestling. Yeah, com completely different mindsets. And uh, yeah. I was so caught up in learning the jiu-jitsu game that I put myself in bad position in that fight, and it cost me. That's really interesting. It, one of the cool things is that, um, I don't know how to say this. I guess, so when, when me and Anson did a podcast on um, the Pride contract, one of the things we talked about was, was the drug testing, because there was a, a strange little stipulation there. And obviously, you mentioned that Josh Barnett fight, and Josh obviously tested positive for that fight. Yes, that's right. But what's great, you, like you didn't even mention that, whereas nowadays, you know, people will be all over it. And I guess it's kind of, you guys, it seems to me that you guys share that same mentality where you guys just got on with it, right? You, you, didn't it, matter. You didn't... Yeah, it did not matter to me. We, yeah. we knew... In the early days of the sport, lots of those guys were doing that. And I looked at that as an advantage for me. Mentally, he was thinking about a whole bunch of other stuff, how big and muscular he looked and how much he could bench press and not what he really needed to do to beat me. That was how I saw that. The guys that were using performance-enhancing drugs, at least at that stage of things, that's the, that was where they were coming from. And I saw that as an advantage. I knew if I could make them work, make them move their feet, make them pummel, make them struggle as much as possible, they were going to get very, very tired very, very quickly. That seemed to be indigenous to guys that were doing that. So yeah. 
I looked yeah, I at think, it as an advantage. For me too, it was like I think back in the day they weren't we people weren't so um uh educated about type of steroids, you know. For for me, I thought that guys gonna do steroids, the steroids not gonna make make them get better technique. No nope. in fact, steroids are gonna make them stronger, but their their stamina is gonna shoot easier. Yeah, so for me, I feel like Frank, you, are you can. Yeah. You might, I might feel your power, but I, I'm the last one that always and had any problem with power. I was always a smaller guy growing up in Hawaii, so yeah. power wasn't a worry. And I thought, shit, get strong, get spooky looking. That's cool, but mm -hmm. it's not going to help the technique. And I, I, I mm -hmm. never, I don't know. Like nowadays, it's a like a big thing. Like it's uh, dangerous. It's you can kill somebody, but. Maybe it's because steroids now has come down to such a science that they can actually get steroids for stamina. They can get steroids for recovery. But back in our day, I think it was more about steroids as equal big muscles and strength. Yeah. And for me, I didn't think that that was a big benefit in fighting. So when I was fighting in Pride, of course, we talked about in the last podcast is it was there was a con there was a clause in the contract that didn't not write steroids. It had, it had a clause in there saying we do not test for steroids. Yep. And for me, it was understood that, you know, when I fought Mark Kerr, I knew he was on all kinds of stuff. Most mm -hmm. of the guys I'd run on something. So, you know, I mean, here's a me, little history. Here's a little history for you. I, I wrestled Mark Kerr in the finals of the NCAA, NCAA championships at 190 pounds. Wow. He wrestled 190 for Syracuse. Whoa. Oh, he was very few, very few short years later. He shows up in the UFC to fight Ranger Stott at 260 pounds, traps oh to his God. ears. And, and I mean, tell me how that happens. <laughs> hard training. Yes, I'm sure there was a lot of hard training, but there was also a lot of very good <laughs> chemistry involved. Uh, yeah. You know, and and and, and if you historically <laughs> look at all those after the UFC bought Pride, and you look at all those athletes that then transitioned to the American market and started fighting for the UFC, how many of those guys really struggled? Yes, almost all of them. Crap, Shogun, Vandalay, uh, whole bunch of Nogueras. There was a whole bunch of those guys. Now I'm not saying those guys, but. <laughs> They, you know, they were definitely getting tested now. And it's interesting to me to see a bunch of those guys stumble before they kind of got in the groove of what was going on in the UFC and the American market and the testing. But Josh was the first to pop after that test. And they tried to give me the title back. I'm like, no, in my mind, I still lost that fight. I don't care that he was using. It didn't make any difference to me. I still made a tactical mistake and lost that fight. You're not handing me the title back. I'll fight for the title. So the next fight I fought was Rico Rodriguez to fill the vacant title because Josh got stripped. So it's, I think yeah, Rico was probably using and got away with it at that time. That that's the rumor. <laughs> but again, it, it didn't matter to me. He he passed the test somehow. So you know it is what it is. Again, I was winning that fight, caught that elbow, fractured my orbit, probably the worst in and you've been there probably the worst injury I sustained anytime you start screwing with your vision, it definitely yeah. gets your attention. So. Yeah, no, it's, it's awesome. I just think uh, it's a mentality where it feels rare now. It seems weird. We see sort of titles get changed hands on discrepancies sometimes, you know, from a, 
someone like throws an illegal kick or something like that and people will sort of mm-hmm. accept it it just it doesn't um it feels it feels almost a little bit rare these days so it's it's cool to uh hope, hopefully some of the modern fighters see you guys and, and try and envision that more because i miss that sometimes i feel like you guys would just fight anyone anytime anywhere and, and that was your your mo right but, yeah there was definitely definitely my attitude about it and and i think that that was Ensign's attitude about it as well. Yeah. Yes, definitely. You know, you know what I find interesting, James, about Randy is uh, remember when we talked to Frank, where after his career he just disappeared, and he has he has nothing to do with MMA. Doesn't watch any MMA. Frank. Yeah, yeah. Frank. Shamrock. Which, well, Frank Shamrock. Frank. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was like, to, uh, I was really tripping on. He's still doing very good. He's very successful, doing very well. And it's like, wow, as as a legend as he was, he's gonna he's just out of the sport. But what I noticed for for me, the same thing happened to me after I retired. Ten years, I stopped doing everything. I was so mm-hmm. burnt out of the sport, I stopped. But you didn't, Randy, right? Because you you went well, and didn't just. Jim. Yeah, I stayed. I stayed connected. Well, I was I was commentating for a little while for the UFC. Um, wasn't a very lucrative deal. I was really only getting to do four shows a year on Fox. There were shows that they did on Fox, and they you know didn't pay me very well. Four shows a year at, at you know twelve grand a, a show. That's that's not enough money to live on, honestly. Um, now I had taken care of my fight money. It's not like I was I was hurting, but I wanted a better gig. With, with the UFC and would have liked to have stayed with the company. But uh, Spike came after me for both scripted and unscripted television in a really, really good deal, uh, a, a very significant contract. And that's what caused, although I'd had a rough go with Zufa and Bob Marowitz, the old company, because of contract disputes and ancillary rights and a bunch of that stuff, uh, that's what really created the, the and drove the wedge between me and, and Dana White and, and the company was, I tried to have a conversation with him. Obviously I had to sign an NDA to even look at the contract with Spike. Uh, and it was a, a significant amount of money that they were offering me to come do a two year deal with them. Um, and I couldn't tell Dana that because I had to sign an NDA. You know, uh-huh. The UFC created the void in Spike TV when they left and went to Fox. Right. You know? Spike was the first one that had the balls, frankly, to put us on television and, and yeah. the ultimate fighter and all that. So now there's this huge void when the UFC bails and goes to Fox. So Spike and Viacom went about shoring up and filling that void with more MMA. What ultimately led them to buy Bellator. You know, they're the ones that own Bellator, uh, Lock, Stock and Barrel. So uh, I ended up working on a show called Fight Master with Spike TV and Bellator. Uh, Frank Shamrock was on that show. Yeah. He was one of the coaches. There were four of us, me, him, Joe Warren, and uh, Winkle. Who's it? Uh, Winkle John. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and it was a, a fun show. It did very, very well. They, they decided not to do another season. Uh, Frank and I ended up doing another show for them called Jim Rescue, kind of like their bar rescue oh, I show. Saw that. Right. Yeah. And we did three episodes. We did three episodes as kind of a test pilot run. It did very well. Got great, great uh, reviews and ratings. But they decided they had too much reality TV, 
and, and they decided not to go with a whole season. So that two-year deal, although it paid me very well, those were the only two shoot shows I did for them. And that's what led to Dana saying I'm banned from UFCs and, you know, I, I can't do any, uh, go to any. So I haven't been to a UFC since 2012, um, wow. you know, because of that. Um, but that's what, how that kind of all went down. Uh, but I, you know, I was at odds with the company from, from the jump because I fought for my ancillary rights and, and these horrible contracts that they were making fighters sign. Now, the upside of that is I, I was one of the few fighters that actually owned my ancillary rights uh, to write a book, to do a movie, to, to do a video game, to do any of these other things. Those are what ancillary rights are. Uh, they could certainly use my name and likeness in, with regard to any of the fights, but I had control of my ancillary rights moving forward. And that's something that all those other fighters signed contracts and gave away to, to Zufa, to the wow. UFC. Um, so, you know, I, I was on the outs with those guys because I held their feet to the fire over those things and early on in, in those contract negotiations. I bought Pedro the first time uh, right after they bought the company in 2001. Now, they had just signed him to a nine-fight deal biggest deal anybody had ever gotten because they were sure he was going to be their new heavyweight champ and he was going to bring in the Brazilians, the Latin American crowd to the American market. Now, obviously, I was the fly in the ointment for that one. Again, it was the same thing when I fought Vitor. You know, I heard stories that Bob Meyer was, was literally jumping up and down screaming in the trailer as I was beating Vitor Belfort in the cage in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi, because that was their poster child, the phenom this 22-year-old kid that was smoking everybody. So he was very upset. I just trashed his, his, you know, his poster boy. And, and the same thing was kind of true in this situation when I beat Pedro Hizzo that first time. He, they just signed him to a night fight deal, and I beat him in the first fight. What are they going to do with him now? So I'm now scheduled to renegotiate a, a new contract with them. I start taking, you know, taking them to task over these ancillary rights and this crazy contract they want me to sign, and I'm I'm the heavyweight champion for them, but they didn't like me because I was 40 years old. They didn't think I was marketable because of my age. This the, the, that first Belfort fight set the tone for my entire career because everybody thought I was going to lose to Vitor because I was this old guy that was fighting. I mean that's just how it went down. So they forced me into an automatic rematch with Pedro. I went up to Seattle and trained with Maurice Smith. Uh, to figure out the kickboxing because Pedro kicked me 14 times in that first fight in my left leg, my lead leg. I have a dent there still to this day where part of that quad muscle just didn't come back. It said, no, hell with you. I'm not, I'm not coming back. <laughs> so I had to learn how to deal with the kick. Just like I had to figure out the ground game and guys like you that were really good at submitting guys. I had to figure out how to check kicks and, you know, I had done a little of that. I knew that Mo was going to try to kick me when I fought him for the title. And I had trained that every time he picked his foot up, I was going to close the distance and take him down. Now, back then it was, you know, 15 minute round and two, three minute overtimes. So I took him down three times in that fight, once in each one of those periods. And that's what won me the world championship. Um, but I had not had anybody that was a kicker like Pedro was all hips and legs you know, mm. uh, great Dutch, you know, he was a student of Dutch kickboxing and uh, Marco Huas and so many other amazing fighters yeah. that were really, really good strikers trained him and, and he threw a low kick. 
He didn't try to kick me in the head. He didn't try to kick me in the body. He kept turning me out with that load kick, and I didn't know how to check it. I didn't know. I was still standing in a wrestler's stance. 60% of the weight on my back leg, using that back leg as a rudder to penetrate off of to close the distance and take guys down. And that was the first thing Mo changed when I went to Seattle to get ready for the rematch with Pedro Hizzo. He had 60% 60 on that back leg. So now I could pick that front leg up and check a kick. He taught me not only how to check kicks, but that was the first time I ever started kicking. And in the rematch, I kicked Pedro. He never kicked me once. And and it was the difference in the fight. Just because you mentioned it, Ryan, you mentioned about some of the issues that you had with the the UFC. Do you you ever... See that maybe one day there will be like a bit of a reconciliation. I know obviously your things are going great with the PFL, but is that something you could foresee in the future? I honestly, I, I doubt it. Doubt it seriously. As long as Dana's there, Dana's the type of guy that's going to hold a grudge. That's why Frank, honestly, is in yeah. in relative obscurity. Even though he was a, a solid performer for the UFC, he's never been inducted in the Hall of Fame. Dana and him had a beef all the way back then, and that's never been forgiven. I don't expect that I'm in any different boat than Frank Shamrock's in. I was already inducted into the Hall of Fame before all this other stuff blew up and the, the contract was Spike and all that. So uh, it's hard to, to take me out of the Hall of Fame now, but I'm sure if, if all that stuff had gone down before I'd been inducted, I'd be in the same boat that Frank is at. They would have never inducted me. Yeah, it's, it's my biggest gripe with the UFC that there's – that there's pieces of history miss, missing, if you know what I mean, depending on how favorable you are with them sometimes. So I mean, that's what it boils down uh, to is that there's a bit of a good old boys club uh, yeah. w- with regard to, to the UFC and who's in Dana's favor. Yeah. Well, that's why we like telling these stories anyway, kind of. So it's out there. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You've got to got to see the full story. Um. But switching gears a little bit, I wanted to talk to you guys um, because both of you guys have done acting. You both acted in the same film, right? <laughs> what one were we um, in together? Uh, was it Red Belt? Red, was it Red, Red Belt? That's oh, it. I wasn't in Red Belt. Oh, he wasn't? Yeah, Wait. Oh, you know? I wasn't in Red Belt. Uh-uh. Oh, Red Belt. Yes, sorry. What was the other <laughs> uh, Red Wait, Belt. Dan, yes. Dan Inosanto. Yeah, David David Mamet. Yes, I, I was thinking. What was yeah, the other Mamet. one? Red Canvas. Wasn't there one called oh, Red okay. Canvas? It was a, more, more of a straight up mixed martial arts movie that was a little bit different. I, that's the one. Yes, but Red Belt. We were in that together. That's right. I forgot about that. I played Dylan Flynn, kind of a retired fighter that was a commentator. Big stretch. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. You were the commentator. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I forgot that you were in that. That 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 was a fun movie. David Mamet was amazing. I thought it was a fun film. Chuatil Ejiofor did an amazing job of yeah, getting up, get up up to speed with jujitsu and what jujitsu was all about, and he portrayed that as realistically as anybody could. I think. Yeah. I was a Morisaki, a Japanese fighter. Ah, that's right. That's right. That's right. And I, I remember um, when I first got that contract. I wasn't, you know, I, I never did feel like I should ever use my, my MMA name to get into acting. I never took a single acting class in my life. So when they gave me a contract, it was really weird because I had to fly myself over. I had to get my own hotel. Uh, the pay was, I don't know, the pay was like 1200 a day. But 
you know, for me, it was like, well, I'm not an actor. That's I lose more money going there than, you know, staying mm-hmm. back in Japan and doing my businesses. So like, oh, I don't know if I want to do this. So when they sent me that contract, it was kind of one-sided, like, hey, um, David Mamet wants you in this, uh, wants you in this part and um, you take it or leave it kind of thing. And I kind of looked at it and told them that I got the, I even got the email correspondence yet where I told them that, you know, it doesn't benefit me. I lose money on this. How about asking Egan? Egan's into that. Mm-hmm. And they told me specifically that David Mamet wants you, specifically you. And I was like, okay, well, things got to change. So mm-hmm. I kind of got my flight paid. I got my hotel paid. And I, I actually went there. And, you know, I, I when I went there and I saw the, the production and I was like, I can't believe I almost turned this up because it was <laughs> such an amazing experience. And David Mamet was like, I didn't know how big a mega icon he was in the Hollywood industry. Yeah, he, he's a huge. He comes up to me and he asks me, what do you think? I'm like, well, it doesn't matter what I think, man. You're the man. He goes, what do you think? What do you think? And he started talking about Yamato Damashi. And the uh-huh. funny thing is I was contracted just to go in there without a speaking part and just hand over the belt. But he told me one day after when he was filming, he told me, Ensign, can you write to me something about Yamato Damashi, what it's about? I'm like, okay. And I started, so I went to the FedEx the next day and stayed on the computer and started writing like a long version and a short version. Went to the set to him the next day and I said, hey, um, this is what I got. And he read it, both of them. He goes, I love it. Let's put it in, he said. So mm-hmm. automatically, I got a speaking part. So, you know, yeah. Anyone that knows Hollywood is, is a huge thing. If you have a speaking yeah. part, one word, you get residuals. Yeah, so, and, and you're eligible for your SAG card now. Yeah, so I think they had to buy the SAG, yeah, because you need to get the SAG for that. And, uh, man, that experience was just amazing. The, the food yeah. was real. The, it was like a, like a <laughs> gourmet buffet every day. You know, the, I remember having my own trailer i would have my own child walk into my trailer it says morisaki i'm like holy shit and i have my wardrobe for the day it, it blew me away the experience was blooming and i was sitting there in the trailer one day thinking holy shit i almost turned this down i would have if i knew what the experience was going to be like i would have flew myself up i would have paid my own hotel i would have yeah. took any pay she wanted me to pay you know it was it was the greatest experience man it was good to see randy so see john jack yeah, there was a lot of great guys attached to that and involved with that. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, yes. That arena in Long Beach was very cool. Mamet is a huge fan of our sport and, and competes and, and trains in jiu-jitsu under Hanato Magno. Uh, yeah. I, he, he was a black belt, I think, at that time. Uh, and that's what where that whole movie grew out of was his love for jiu-jitsu and, and yeah. trying to create something that was MMA or, you know, Jiu-jitsu oriented in the MMA world is kind of how I would describe that movie. Um, but it was it was fun. And he, yeah, I had no idea who, who David Mamet was either. Yeah. I got too. a call from my agent and he said, Hey, <clears throat> they want me to go in and read for this part. You know, here's the sides. Your appointment is on this day, you know. So I got off book and you know, walked into this place with these strangers who I, I didn't know any, anybody there. There's a gal there with a camera and a, and a casting director. And they have another girl that comes in and, and is going to do the scenes with me as an actor. And she's full on crying. You know, this is the gal that, that in the movie had been raped. And 
And, you know, that's what brought her to the MMA, to the jiu-jitsu gym was she wanted to learn self-defense. Yeah. That yeah. was the scene we had to read that day for the tryout. And, and so we're doing it. We do it a couple of times. Uh, you know, she like full on in, in this wow. tryout cries and everything. I'm like, holy hell, this is amazing. <laughs> yeah. And the next we know, the, the casting director is like, oh, the director wants to come in and he wants to shake your hand. And, and, and so Mamet comes in. I don't know who he is. You have no <laughs> idea what a big, big name in the industry this guy is. And he comes in and talks to me for 20 minutes. We end up doing two more scenes with Mamet. And, and I, I leave, you know, I don't think any, and I'm reading for the lead role, for Chiwetel's role. That was what I was, I went in there to audition for. And so I had no idea who he was. And I, you know, it's like, yeah, the, you know, this guy came in, he was the director of the movie, Dave, this guy, David Mamet. And I did two scenes, two extra scenes with him. My agent almost fell over. He's like, you what? Mamet came in and worked with you directly? I was like, yeah. What's, he's like, you have no, I had no idea. So he, he educated me <laughs> uh, on all the things that David had accomplished. <clears throat> And where all that came from so it was it was pretty cool and obviously i didn't get the lead role he came up with dylan flynn and and the commentator you know former fighter that turned commentator to play that character and chiwetel got the lead role got that that what i actually auditioned for you know the crazy thing is is david mamet you cannot you would not walk in there thinking that he's a big thing the way he had the humbleness he shows the how open he is talks with the i mean I was like a, just a side guy, you know, just a little part. Yeah. And he came to talk to me. I mean, that guy is such a humble guy. Yeah, but, and that's one of the first things I learned. And, and I learned this lesson working with Doug Crosby because I got my SAG card through doing Oz. You know, Doug was the coordinator for the HBO series Oz. Yeah. And one mm -hmm. of the first things he asked me if I wanted to come do, you know, play play a, a CEO, a corrections officer in, in Oz. And he, you know, sh sh introduced me to everybody when I was on set. And, and he's like, one of the first things he told me was, you can always tell a man's character by how he treats people he doesn't need to be nice to. And that really stuck with me. That's And that's, that's exactly what Mamet, Mamet showed his true character. Yeah, because yeah. He, treat, he treated a bunch of people there with respect and gave them time of day. And they're, they're not people that he, you know, he didn't have to be nice to anybody if he didn't want to be. So that, I mean, that's just a, yeah. an he didn't need to be nice example of the character that that man possesses. And I used that as a litmus test as I, as I progressed and transitioned into being an actor and, and learning all that. Give me, the, give me the guys that are, that are going to have no ego and are, are going to be nice to everybody, regardless who they are. Yeah. That's, you know, who else is like that, Randy, uh, I think, you know, you know, um, when you went to Hawaii Five, well, Alex Laughlin is like that. Yeah, Alex is a great guy, absolutely. Every time I go on over to his house, you know, invited me over to his house for dinner to meet his family, his kids. Uh, you know, he was just a super engaging, super nice guy. I, I get along great with Scotty Khan too. Scott was a great That's guy. Scotty's yeah, uh, a good guy. Too. Yeah, yeah, really enjoyed uh, working. I did four episodes that played an absolutely psycho on the series, <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. Yeah, when, when I went to went on set with Alex, you know, he walks around the set introducing me to the cable guy, the makeup guy. I mean, he knew everybody yeah. by name. Yeah. And and I don't know if you know James, Alex Laughlin is a guy who played McGarrett on Hawaii Five-0. He's the main guy, right? He's like, yeah, oh, man. you know, and it's like, yeah. he knows all the little people. He, he mm -hmm. He's mm -hmm. nice to them. 
knows him by name. I mean, yeah, for like for me, I even David Mamet and him, like the one of the two of the biggest guys in in that in that set is like mm -hmm. like the just most humble guys, and it's it's such an inspiration to see that. Yeah, I agree. It's a, that is inspiring. The guys that that have it in perspective and and see things in in the real world how they should be. This worked on Expendables Four. Uh, that's coming out in hidden theaters. That's hidden theaters on September twenty second. And uh, I got to work with Andy Garcia, which I've always been a, a big fan of his work. Never met him. And to work with him, see him work, and then meet him as a person, he's exactly what you're describing as well. He's just humble, nice to everybody. You know, ordered, a, you know, worked late. It was Thanksgiving. Obviously, you don't celebrate Thanksgiving in Greece. We were shooting in Greece, and he bought, we got pizzas for everybody in the, in the lobby of the hotel, and, you know, just kind of celebrate Thanksgiving. He's just a gracious amazing guy to work with and again one of those guys you want to admire because of their attitude and their character so i have a question randy you you worked on red belt and for me that was probably the besides hawaii five low red belt was probably the biggest thing i've ever been on as far as uh the the magnitude of the size of the the whole production mm -hmm. so something like the expendables is that is that like the same type of magnitude or i mean it's bigger it, actually I, I thought I was. Yeah. Oh, we I shot, can't imagine being bigger than Red Belt. Oh my God! Yeah, we shot all four of those. Uh, took two and a half to three months to shoot. Wow! Um, so it was a, a, a longer process than the cup. You know, the few weeks that we did Red Belt. Yeah. yeah. Um, we shot the first one in New Orleans predominantly, and I was there for three months, living in a hotel. And that one, we worked nights, so six nights a week, I was up all night working. It was a that was a big challenge and a grind for sure. Uh, two and three were both shot in Bulgaria for three months in Bulgaria in a hotel working wow. over there. We just shot four in London, Bulgaria, and Greece, and that took two and a half months. So it's and, and that's probably the biggest property I've been attached to and been involved that's with. For sure. Amazing! Oh, I can't imagine the magnitude of that. I'm right. What's the cast of guys is ridiculous. I mean, it's a crazy yeah, cast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> literally a who's who of '80s action stars. That's what I was gonna say. I was, I was gonna say, what's the dynamic like? I mean, because I, I would say like something between. Like, I don't know if Sylvester Stallone's like a big MMA fan, but I'm gonna say you might be a Rocky fan. Is. You kind of like trade off. With job. Yeah, that's that's why I got the job. Honestly, he's, he's wow. a huge fight fan. Obviously, boxing. We know he's yeah. a huge boxing yeah. aficionado, yeah. historian for boxing. Barney Ross is the real name of a real boxer from back in the early 1900s, and that's his character oh, in no The Expendables. Uh, oh, he's a no huge way. fight fan, and he, he, you know, he had he had loves MMA, and, and he, he loved my approach to MMA, and that's how I got the call and got the opportunity to, to be in awesome. the film. They originally awesome. wanted they originally wanted me to play Hail Caesar. It was written for Wesley Snipes, but Wesley was having some issues at that time. <laughs> And uh, and so he was going to revamp that character, um, you know, wanted to be this college educated guy with cauliflower ears and jokes and talks about his cauliflower ears and quotes Nietzsche and all this crazy stuff. And and then a week later, he ends up getting Terry Crews to, to play Hail Caesar. So he went back and wrote Toll Road into the script to keep me on board, which I mean, I was flattered. I, I couldn't believe that he that he went to that trouble to keep me involved in the film and kind of developed Toll Road based on the conversation that we had had in his office that day. So um, pretty amazing to, to get to, to be able to be 
working with all those guys. I grew up watching all those guys, like most yeah. of us. You know, yeah. Rambo, oh, yeah. You know, Conan the Barbarian, diehards, you know, Bruce Willis. I mean, go on down the line with, with Harrison Ford stepping on board, you know. That's Han Solo. I mean, yeah, it, it, I was, it was a surreal experience yeah. to be involved with that cast and that crew. I bet. And I bet it's kind of cool when they sort of geek out and be like, oh, you know, when some of them are like, oh, I remember when you won the UFC and <laughs> you're there like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So. yeah it definitely uh, was very flattering and interesting. They're huge fans, all of them, huge fans of the sport. Cool. Um, final yeah, question awesome. on the, the acting side of things. Um, do you guys think MMA helps in, in that sense? Because we, we've seen quite a few. I know Rampage has done some stuff, obviously. Yeah, you um, know, Conor McGregor's doing, doing the new reboot of, of uh the Swayze movie Roadhouse mm-hmm. um, Jake Gyllenhaal and, and my boy Jay Haran just did that use the weigh-ins for this last yeah, year right. they filmed that yeah, scene. Right. Jay has done a great job started in stunts and setting himself on fire and a bunch of crap like that and now he's getting speaking roles obviously the equalizer you know with Denzel was a huge step up for him and so to see him you know continue to flourish and make that transition into acting has been really cool as well um but yeah, it's 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 been not something I ever set out to do, and athletics opened yeah. that door. Um. Do you think it's because you guys are like the the spotlights on you, and you're kind of leaving it all out there? Do you think that that helps? I think again? we as we as mixed martial artists bring an authenticity and a physicality to, to to any role, and so you know, acting is a weird thing. We spend our whole lives as athletes boxing up our emotions and pushing them to the side and staying laser focused on doing exactly what we're trained to do and hopefully go out and be successful and get the win. Now you want you to step in front of the camera and let all that crap out. It's a weird, yeah. weird experience. Yeah, so crazy. That's awesome. <laughs> cool. Well, um, Edson, do you have anything else you want to ask? Yeah, I just or? wanted to, um, before we close up, I wanted to mention the Randy's Gym, uh, Extreme Couture. I mean, they're they're like, I brought one of my students over there to train. They're like, it's a pretty awesome facility. The coaches, Eric, Dennis, uh, Eddie, they're freaking awesome guys. Uh, just my student, Shoshi just came there, went there, trained a couple months ago. Oh, got, cool. Got awesome work in, uh, got awesome wrestling work with Dennis, got some striking with Eric, you know. And I mean, the the funny thing I wanted to mention, I never, I, Every time I went there, I've always been looking forward to saying hi to Randy, but he's never there. So I would, it's yeah. funny because I would just walk in like, where's Randy? Where's Randy? And then I went in there and like, like nowadays, you know, the fighters will know the old school fighters. Eric, mm-hmm. Dennis, um, Eddie all come up and say hi. They all know me. We shake hands, everything. And then yeah. Kevin Lee comes by, doesn't know who I am. Sean Strickland comes by, doesn't know who I am. <laughs> and I'm not this kind of guy, like, how come you don't know who I am? I'm kind of like, I kind of know they don't know who I am. But the funny story I wanted to tell Randy is, you know, out of my respect, it's Randy's gym. I know his your son Ryan's running it now. That's right. So Ryan's office in the front. So I went in there and I went to just say hi to Ryan. And I said, oh, how's it? Um, it's an awesome facility. Thanks for letting us train here. And he looked at me like, who the hell are you? <laughs> he, didn't, uh-huh. he didn't know who it was. So I kind of didn't want to say anything. Like, oh, I'm Ensign or anything. I just said, oh, um, tell your father I said hello. And I kind of thought, you know, just drop it already. So I just <laughs> left. 
shit. Ryan doesn't know who I am either. I'm like, oh damn. <laughs> it was like, oh now I feel real obsolete, man. <laughs> was uh, so- he, he was pretty young when, when back when we fought. Yeah, yeah, no, no, really, he was honestly, he was pretty young. Um, I don't think he'd really plugged into the sport until later. Uh, till he got out of high school and and into college, and that's when he started doing jujitsu and started training in Muay Thai, uh, just oh, to get in shape because he put on a bunch of weight from drinking too much beer in college. <laughs> so you know, he, he that's, was a little that's what unplugged. I forget. Um, that's what I forget. When I was fighting the age of these people. Like Joe Rogan just had a podcast with Sean O'Malley, and Sean O'Malley was like, "Who's that?" And then I kind of laughed about. It. I thought it was funny, yeah. and then. Somebody pointed out to me on my social media say, and said, you know, when you were fighting, you know, Sean O'Malley was four years old. I'm like, oh, shit. That puts yeah. everything into perspective. One, yeah. how long ago I used to fight, and two, how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I get that all the time now. Man, I've been watching you fight since I was a little kid. I'm like, so you're that's the nicest yeah. way anybody yeah. called me an old bastard in a long time. <laughs> they compliment you while calling and telling you how old you are. Yeah, exactly. Hilarious. But yeah, I, look, I'm, I, I love your gym. I think your gym has Thank the you, training facilities. If I, I always recommend your gym to all the Japanese fighters. They want a good training. I mean, yeah. the hard, the hard training, the the way they training, the the technique they show. I learn, I learn going to that gym, watching the training. You know, so wow. I mean, I'm gonna be there. Uh, Shoshi's gonna be a staple there. My wife Sarah fights, so I have her trained there too. And awesome. I really look forward to meeting you one day. We'll I- run into each other there sooner or later, for sure. But I really appreciate that. We've, we've worked hard. Obviously, we, we started Extreme Couture MMA in, in 2007 when I was in the middle of my fight career. And, um, you know, our, our motto there is check your ego at the door. It's only going to get in the way. We try to create a family atmosphere. You know, yes. those brothers and sisters that we get on the mat and sweat and bleed with, they're they're you don't get any closer. There's no stronger bond than that, that bond right there, just because of that fact. And, uh, you know, showing that vulnerability in front of each other on a regular basis. And then I think that creates an atmosphere. If, if you embrace that, that, that really makes it someplace special. And I appreciate you saying that, man. Yeah, it is, you know, because for me too, as a, I used to run my gyms like that, a family atmosphere. When I walked into uh, extreme couture for the first time, I, I mean, Brad Tavares, uh, Ray full, they all created me. It was it was automatically when we start training there, you feel like you're part of the family. And I, yeah. I felt really privileged because we come there only for fight training every yeah. so often. But yeah. the funny thing is that that gym has such a family atmosphere. Every time I watch the UFC, if there's an extreme couture fighter, I'm there cheering for them 100%. <laughs> like they're family, you know. So that, yeah. that proves to show that there's such a family atmosphere there that you really get connected to the fighters there. Yeah, I agree 100%. That's awesome. it's a, Props you know, on that Brian, Ryan, Eric, you know, all the instructors there, all the guys have done a great job of maintaining yes. and, and creating that atmosphere and, and allowing that mentality to flourish in, in a tough environment. I mean, we're literally beating the hell out of each other and pushing each other to the limit every single day. That's how you get better. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens yes. another. Yes, but I just wanted to thank you for allowing us to um, be a part of that family and uh, look forward to meeting you there one day. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, man. We'll definitely find you in there one day. I appreciate you having me on here. This has been fun. No, the, yeah. thank you for coming, Randy. Awesome. Have thank you so pleasure. much, Randy. You bet. You guys have a great day.
Awesome. Thanks, everybody, for watching. Cool. Right wow, that was awesome to catch up with Randy. Uh, nice talk. Awesome to see him. Well, anyway, thank you for watching. Uh, subscribe, like, and share. Thanks, man. Right on.